Another great episode of Mystery of Parenthood coming up. If you like what you hear, go to redsearadio.org, click on the donate button, and become a monthly sustaining member. Please support us. Thank you, and God bless. All right, you know what that means. You are listening to The Mystery of Parenthood. And um, before we get started, please do slow down and pull over if you're driving before you slow down. But anyway, (laughs) slow down and we're going to begin with our prayer. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. Lord God, from you, every family in heaven and on earth takes its name. Father, you are love and life. Through your Son, Jesus Christ, born of woman, and through the Holy Spirit, the fountain of divine charity, Grant that every family on earth may become for each successive generation a true shrine of life and love. Grant that your grace may guide the thoughts and actions of husbands and wives for the good of their families and of all the families in the world. Grant that the young may find in the family solid support for their human dignity and for their growth in truth and love. Grant that love, strengthened by the grace of the sacrament of marriage, may prove mightier than all the weaknesses and trials through which our families sometimes pass. Through the intercession of the Holy Family of Nazareth, grant that the Church may fruitfully carry out her worldwide mission in the family and through the family. We ask this of you, who is life, truth, and love, with the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Holy Family of Nazareth, pray for us. St. John Paul II, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, you are listening to The Mystery of Parenthood on Red Sea Catholic Radio. And we just um, are excited about our guest. We're talking. It's going to be a. It's going to be a very important topic. Um, but I think it's going to be, you know, it, it's going to be challenging. But um, I think we all need to kind of brush up on this. And so, for that purpose, we've brought along with Thaddeus, who is here in the house. How you doing, Trey? All right, I'm doing great. We brought Arlen Nichols, one of our uh, regular. Uh, guests um, who is um, an expert in these things, and so we um, why don't we just let Arlen introduce himself, and then after that we'll get to the topic. But um, Arlen, welcome aboard. Thank Glad you. Glad you're here. Thank yeah. you. It's good to be with you today. Thanks yeah. for having me. Oh, I love always love having you, and I'm so grateful for all that you do. So why don't you tell the people out there who may not know? Sure, I'm, yeah. I'm the president and founder of the St. John Paul II Foundation. Uh, we're based in Houston, and we do work across the country for life and for family uh, through educating priests, educating medical professionals, and educating spouses, helping them to live beautifully uh, their call to marriage. So um, we're uh, blessed to, to do that incredible work in partnership all across the country with dioceses, and uh, it's been quite a journey these last almost six years now. Uh, well, it's so awesome. exciting. I mean, I mean, I... I all of the things we're going to focus on the medical field in, mm-hmm. in this show, which is a little different, but I think is very um, important for the family. So for parents, for children to kind of lay the groundwork, because I think the topic that we will talk about, if you wait till it's actually happening to have the conversation, it may be too late to actually be able to do it. We can talk about that later, but, but the bottom line is, is, medical issues, but all the other stuff you're doing, I've, I've been very involved in the mar- family and marriage side and the spouses together in holiness mm-hmm. conferences, which are, which are great. Um, and when, when are those, like, are those? You, so the you know, next one for, uh, next together in holiness conference will be in the fall in September. Okay. Uh, but then we have in March, March 28th, we have our medical ethics conference. Oh uh, yeah, in, that's right. In, in Houston. So it's not that, uh, not that far away, especially for anybody involved in medicine. I mean, the opportunity to go to a continuing education conference in healthcare ethics, if you're a medical student or wanting to go into medicine, or if you're active in medicine in any way, uh, it's an incredible conference and we're, we're hitting some, uh, really important topics this year, like the opioid crisis, wow. medical marijuana, vaccines, access to care for the poor. Uh, so it's it's a really exciting conference, March uh, 28th this year. That's exciting. I hope to come and I got a, I know I got a son yeah. that wants to do it, but, but it's there at, it's there near your 
office, right? Yeah, in, it's, in Houston, the west west side of Houston. Yeah, so I've driven that many times, and it and from here in College Station, anybody that's in healthcare or medical school here, it's max an hour and fifteen minutes. Yeah, yeah. I mean that's not even speeding. <laughs> that's just normal. That's just normal traffic. So that's a that's definitely could be a day trip easily. So, um, but I guess springboarding off of that, what we were going to talk about. Um, today does fall in that medical decision making and the medicine part of it, and it's something we haven't done today. But um, we're going to talk about we're going to talk about end of life mm-hmm. issues. Um, why 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 would you say it's so important? Today? Yeah, I mean, the it's such an important topic for couples. I mean, we th- we think of it maybe in terms of the culture wars to talk about euthanasia and assisted suicide and. And or in the privacy of our own homes, maybe at most. But the reality is that the most difficult moments in life, the most difficult moments in, in a, of a family, often centers around medical situations and making difficult decisions uh, for loved ones. When you see great suffering for loved ones, for a grandmother, or a mother, or a son, or a daughter, yeah. and 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 to be able to have uh, our church's rich teaching at hand, I think is so important for us as Catholics. And I think that's our goal today, you know, is, is really to equip families in the most difficult moments, medical decision-making, and especially near the end of life. Uh, what are the tools that the church gives us? What are the principles the church gives us so that we can make the best decisions possible for our loved ones, for our children, for our grandparents, for our parents? Yeah, and I think, and the reason is, so I, I've actually experienced and been through the end of life, lengthy end of life, well, relatively lengthy mm-hmm. months, at least, of of somebody that is preparing to die. Um, my my grandfather, my grandmother, and my mother all uh, different forms of cancer. But the but but well, that's I'm sorry. My grandmother um, didn't. Have, well, she had cancer, but that's not what led to her death. But but the other two did uh, go through that, and so. I have experienced and I know how difficult it is. And it's even difficult because of how much if your loving relationship with somebody to to be able to stay clear-minded sure in in the midst of those things because there's so much emotion involved. There's so much pain, uncertainty, wanting to help, all those things that come in come into play as you're watching somebody suffer that to be able to have something that keeps things clear. So what tools, I mean, for that, if you're in a situation, if you find yourself in that situation, what kind of tools, I mean, do does the church provide to guide us? Well, the first thing I think it, to really focus on is, is to recall that beautiful truth about the human person, right? That the human person is made in the image and likeness of God. And that life that is entrusted to us, we are stewards of that life. And we're called to do everything we can to be good stewards of that life that's been entrusted to us. Um, and, and always recognizing kind of our place, if you will, in the world, uh, that life is a great good, but also that life is frail. And, 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 and not to make light of it, but we always hear that, you know, what are the two things in life that we're yeah. certain of, right? Death and taxes. Our time here will end, right? And, 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 we need to always recognize that even though we are Imago Dei, even though we need to do everything that we're called to do reason, that's reasonable, right, to preserve uh, human life, at the end of the day, each of our lives will come to an end. At the end of the day, each one of us will suffer. And the church's beautiful reminder that the person, no matter their frailty, the person, no matter their suffering, no matter their physical condition, is always imago Dei, is that incredible image of God that we read about in Genesis. So I think that's the first place to begin for us, right, is that we are that image, and no matter what happens, that never changes. Right, and the, fa- the face of Christ, if we look, that's why crucifixes are so important, I sure. think. God himself, who could have done it many other, many ways, dies on a cross mm-hmm. in front uh, it, it, so that we can all see that love. So he didn't remove himself from that. He could have just ascended into heaven. There's lots of things he could have done. Sure. So part of the revelation is that death is part of being human. It's part of, it's part of the state mm-hmm. that we have. And I think that that's something that because of how far we've gone in healthcare in terms of the ability to prolong life, to 
eliminate suffering, you know, or to reduce suffering or whatever, that I think that sometimes we push off death. I mean, I, I heard, I heard one time I had a, I was, I've been involved in healthcare a long time. I had a doctor say that death was his enemy. And I said, dude, you lose that battle every time. <laughs> I mean, why would death be your enemy? I mean, it is the enemy, but I mean, to, to have that as that, to fight that enemy without qualification, using every possible tool always, if that's your enemy, you're still going to lose the battle. Right. I mean, you're going to lose the war, I guess. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's going to happen. So I, I don't you think that sometimes because we've become so, um, well, I guess the availability of so many means to prolong life and absolutely. I mean, medicine today is incredible, right? right. I mean, what we can do today uh, is truly remarkable. I mean, you think especially of of little ones who are born prematurely, right? You know, not that long ago that was a virtual death sentence, right, for severe prematurity. Today, children are you know born you know and and surviving yeah. and and thriving, you know, who are born uh, very early. Uh, at, same with those born with severe disabilities, those who get cancer, right? I mean, so many things today are just run of the mill in terms of what medicine can do. It's incredible. So it's almost like we take it for granted that we can fight off this, like you were saying, we can fight off death in perpetuity and we got to do everything we can. It's also because we love people. Right, right. I mean, and, and we don't want people to go. We love our loved ones. We love we love our sons and our daughters and our and our parents and our grandparents, and we don't want right them to go. Um, and but we can get caught up in that. We can get caught up in this idea that I govern my life and think it's all in my hands. But the reality is, at the end of the day, it's not. And so, yeah, I think the technology that we have, off as wonderful as it is, is it actually brings to the forefront some really difficult ethical questions along the way. When do I stop pursuing this treatment? Do we start this experimental treatment, right? Is this, I mean, and and because the technology is is possible uh, in many cases to pursue treatment. So uh, we need to have tools, practical tools to help us to really discern, all right, in light of what treatments are possible, which ones should I pursue, right? For myself, for a loved one, Right, who maybe can't make decisions for for themselves, and 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 thankfully, praise God, right? The church gives us an incredible set of principles, aside from the the notion and reminder that we're the image of God, to do just that, and and does so in this language of proportionate versus disproportionate means. And I know we'll dig more into that uh, as we go, but uh, the the church has this wonderful teaching, dec- centuries in the making. Uh, that helps us to think through uh, whether or not we ought to do a treatment or not. Well, so what came to mind is, is I did, I lived through my, my mother's being diagnosed with pancreatic cancer late, you know, and, and as was often the case with pancreatic cancer, they don't catch it until it's, sure. until it's bad. And I remember two decisions distinctly that I think maybe you can, maybe you'd be able to springboard off of one was initially went down to MD Anderson and they, and they talked through uh, her options and my mother and my dad being there was like, okay, so what, what's the, what's the likelihood of this surgery that we're going to do to try to remove this Mm -hmm. is going to be successful. And if successful, what would that mean in terms of prolonging my life? And what's the likelihood that I might die while in surgery as a result of where it is? And those were good, those are good questions to have. And they went through that decision and she decided it was, it was like a 10% chance, 50% she would die because where the, where the tumor was 10% success rate, she said, then that's not really an option. I need to be able to go back home and spend time with my family and prepare to die but then as she started to get jaundiced because there was a bile duct was being blocked by the tumor, one doctor explained it in a way that sounded like she was just going to be prolonging her life. And so she, she made the decision not to do anything, and she began to turn very jaundiced and get kind of sleepy about the time my dad, who's a physician, runs into another doctor who says, look, we can just put a 
stent and if we can get a stent placed we can drain the 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 bile will go away and then we can keep her alive in a way that she's more awake and you know and and not it doesn't have to go this way and so they did it so it's it's interesting just like in that dynamic asking the right questions but then also getting appropriate answers because the way the oncologist was explaining to her didn't have that as an option, but my dad happened to run into a uh, urologist, I think, or somebody that, um, endocrine, I don't even remember what type of doctor, but who said it would be relative. If I can get the stent placed, it it opens it up. Then she doesn't have to go through that. But anyway, I don't know if there are any, as you're thinking of that, I mean, just those things were, I'm grateful that that happened because we did get another two months of mother that was very coherent Mm -hmm. and, um, not even we're not even talking about pain at that point. We're right, just talking right. about making a decision on what do we do. Well, and 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 that brings to mind two things for me. One is, you know, I already hinted at, but that di- distinguishing between proportionately beneficial care and disproportionately burdensome care. That clearly, I think y'all did, and that second doctor in particular saw a, a way to help relieve pain and suffering and to make her ha- be healthier or allow her to be healthier. You know, for a couple of months. It was perfectly beneficial and right. without the you know undue burden. But before we go too deeply into that, I'd love to just point to maybe the extremes and these kinds of okay, situations yeah. that we want sure. to avoid. And and because there's this idea, you know, we recognize and appreciate the value of human life. Um, but some have this idea that we have to do anything and everything right. to keep someone alive. And and this has been described by some leaders in the church as as kind of a therapeutic tyranny um, and, and, and uh, we're overzealous, clearly burdensome medical interventions are done on behalf of a loved one. Um, this is actually, you know, the reality more times than not in medical practice today. It's we, we got to do everything to keep grandma alive. Right. And there's this tendency to overtreat. I have a, a dear friend who's a, a medical director, a uh, very strong Catholic. He's a medical director of the uh, pediatric intensive care unit. I mean, you can imagine the right. cases, right? The patients who come before him. And I, you know, I've sat there on days in which he's with, visiting with him on days that he lost, you know, a, 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 a you know, a nine year old. And, and he shared with me stories over the years of, of just over-treatment. And he knows that what they are doing is actually beneath the dignity. But you've got crying parents there, and they don't they just want to keep their little one alive, and understandably so. And so it's it's a it's a true challenge. And but that's that tendency to keep somebody alive, to do everything we can. I'll never forget I was at a, a luncheon once uh, for I'm in Sarah Club vocation right, promotion yeah. in Houston. I was at a luncheon. I was sitting with two people at a table, and uh, one of them says to me, "No matter what happens, no matter what my condition is, with the very last spark of energy left in the world, do everything you can to preserve my life." Oh my goodness! And then the other person in the room says the exact opposite, right? And so that manifests that extreme, like this therapeutic tyranny, right? But the other extreme was the other gentleman at the table who says to me. No matter what, I don't want to be connected to any machines. I don't want any tubes. It was like, when I get here, I want nothing. It was just kind of carte blanche, nothing, right? right? And, and so there you have the other extreme we want to avoid, right? This, 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 today, what we see in the culture wars of euthanasia and assisted suicide, um, and, and we've got to avoid that extreme as well. So, I mean, we could go into all, give, we can give details, examples of that. I mean, just this, this uh, past year in 2019, in a Catholic hospital in a Midwestern state, I won't name names right now, but in a Midwestern state, there was a, a, a doctor ODing patients. He killed 25 patients oh, yeah. I heard about that. in a Catholic hospital. Uh, and, and, you know, out of a false compassion, out of false mercy, and he was literally overprescribing fentanyl, one of these opioids, synthetic opioids, to end their life. So these are the extremes we face. Do everything I'm master of life and I can end it when I want, whether I'm a patient or a physician. We've got to avoid those. So, so I mean, I assume you have some of the, the thing that strikes me is, is I'm sitting here going, how do I, how do I make the decision 
I mean, what are the things that I do? Right. And what's the process through which I go to make that decision? Like, am I going too far to one extreme or am I going mm-hmm. too far to another? I mean, well, like, well, and that's where that, what we were talking about or what we hinted at earlier, that proportionate versus disproportionate right. means. I mean, this is the true toolkit that the church has given us that allows us as members of families to make decisions for ourselves and for our loved ones. And so I think digging into what that means, like what does the church means mean right. when it says proportionate? So proportionate means are those that are obligatory. Morally, they're obligatory. They're medical treatments in which the benefits outweigh the burdens. And that's going to vary from one place to another, right? From one patient to another at one stage of life to the next. Um, But so it's when the benefits outweigh the burdens. And those benefits that we can consider, those things that we consider include all kinds of topics, cost, the, 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 the health of the patient, the health of our loved one. They include the medical treatment. How common is the medical treatment? Is it accessible? Um, what are the like? What's the likelihood of success? What's the amount of pain right, that would be experienced as a result of this treatment? I mean, these are the kinds of things that go into asking: Is this proportionate treatment? Do the benefits outweigh the burdens? On the other hand, we have what we can call disproportionate treatments. Um, sometimes you'll hear the word extraordinary. Disproportion, I think, is a little bit clear. The old traditional language, ordinary versus extraordinary means, right. but people thought that meant there was a list somewhere, like you could go, you know, to find yeah. the, the definitive list, and here's your list of ordinary treatments, here's your list of extraordinary treatments. You always have to do these, you never have to do these. That's not how it works, right? There's no set list. When you think about disproportionately burdensome treatments, this is when the burdens outweigh the benefits. In the judgment of the patient, uh, or their caretaker, uh, the benefits, or excuse me, the burdens are outweighing the benefits. So this is when the pain would be too great. It's when the when the patient couldn't handle the intervention. The likelihood of recovery would be low. Um, it's when when it, it's you know it's extraordinarily difficult, right, to be able to have access to the treatment. You know, today we have all these stem cell treatments that are available in other countries. Do you have to go to Mexico to get or to China, right, to be able to get a uh, stem cell transplant surgery, you know, this kind of thing. And the answer oftentimes is going to be no. So in, in shorthand, we just simply ask the question, for this patient at this time, with this condition, and with these reasons, we can ask, is this treatment, proposed treatment, benef- more beneficial than it is burdensome, or is it more burdensome than it is beneficial? And when we ask those questions, it really ultimately what seems to maybe be shades, like it's all gray, like there's no one definitive answer. But when we discern this in the context of a particular patient, a particular loved one, that what seems to be all gray and there's there's no definitive one way to go or another, it actually becomes a, a thin black line at the end of the day, what we ought to do, what we ought not do. At least that's what I've found in my own ethics consultations and my own situations in my family when we've had to make decisions for loved ones. Do you, do you, I mean, does it not come how, what some people may consider burdensome? Are there opinion? I mean, yeah. in, in the context of, of an of a actual event there, I could see where there'd be people saying, well, that's not so, that's not that burdensome. And then somebody sitting right across that's in the, in the, involved in that decision-making process that disagrees. Right. It's, I mean, think of you and I right here, two men talking about this. We right. both have incredible wives, right, right. Who've, who've given birth, right? right, endured incredible pain right. Right? to give birth, right, to, to children. Uh, I mean, I think even that alone, like, we couldn't handle that. I know I couldn't handle that. My, yeah, wife, it, make my w- wife's pain tolerance <laughs> yeah. Yeah. is, but that's true for all kinds of things. What might be able to be handled by one person uh, in terms of pain alone, is gonna it's gonna be different, but also the values will be different, right? I mean, if 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 we're making medical decisions and I haven't received spiritual care, I haven't received last rites, like I'm gonna be in that like do what you can to keep me alive until I receive the sacrament, 
Right. Right. That is essential. And I will endure whatever pain I have to as a result, right, or of, of the need to make sure that I am as spiritually prepared as I can be, because that's such a high value for me. But if I've received the sacrament and now the, I'm going to be less inclined to desire that pain, right? Or right. to want to kind of fight through that pain and offer it up and all that sort of thing. So, yeah, it's going to differ on, on, you know, patient to patient and even in different stages of life. Right now, I'm right. a, I'm a 38 year old man, right? 50 years, the same question is going to be different, right? right? From, or the answer is going to be different to the same question in terms of whether or not I pursue a particular treatment because now I've lived a long life. What I can endure as an older gentleman is going to be different than as a young as a young man, um, and so on and so forth. So you know, it definitely is patient to patient, uh, and that scares people. We always have to avoid though those two extremes, right? It's patient to patient, but always avoiding those euthanasia and you know I did it my way, as well as the extreme of do everything you can. Yeah, I mean that's I, I just it is having gone through it as a child or as a grandchild. It, it is. It is really <laughs> a challenge Absolutely. to 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 go through it, but you're but you're right. Every situation's different. You know, an eighty year old, eighty two year old grandmother making that decision versus, say, a fifty seven year old mother who has kids that are you know that does come into play, like where they are in in life relative. I mean, but not by itself, but it is a characteristic or it is a something that's taken into consideration absolutely and it's not to say that the older person's life right isn't as valuable no no we're not saying that at all all. but given the condition of the patient i'll give you an example Uh, just uh just not long ago um you know i got a call i was i was out uh i was out hunting i got a call from somebody you know from time to time i i receive ethics consults priests or doctors or or loved ones will call me and you know ask me to walk them through uh, a particular situation. And the situation I share with you now is one that this, you know, this person would be fine with me sharing. I won't say names obviously, but so I've received the call and, 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 and kind of help walk through and, and it's somebody who has uh, a 97 year old grandfather uh, who would begin, begun experience shortness of breath and, and, you know, lots of, the heart was beginning to struggle, right. With this right. gentleman and he, and, and, uh, uh, and just in recent months, really, fell and hit his head. And so was beginning to have, you know, hemorrhaging of, of, and, and, and swelling of the brain and all this. And they're considering what interventions should be done for this 97 year old gentleman. I mean, almost everything. And she, what she called me really just worried that they were youth, you know, trying to euthanize her grandfather. But the reality was once I got all the details and I, and I won't go into all of them, but once I got the details of the particular case, it seemed very clear that now was a time to allow natural death to occur. And the service really that I provided in that situation was one really of comfort. Like, we're good. Don't worry in this particular instance. Um, this is a situation in which it's time to allow um, your grandfather to go to his eternal reward. Um, and there have been other cases, you know, where I have said, oh, wait a second. No, you know, that that this 16-year-old we're talking about, no, that would be euthanasia to withdraw that treatment. And, and we need to make sure that we fight this. And I've done that with doctors, you know, who are working with other doctors who aren't always on the same page. So I, I, I think, you know, we, I think you're absolutely right. It, in, this, in the stickiness of situations, it can be very difficult. But at the end of the day, the church has this wonderful teaching. And, and when we would think through it and walk through that teaching of proportionately beneficial versus disproportionately burdensome, we find an answer and we can find a solution that not only makes us feel good, like I did with this, you know, this one consult I received, but also is the right thing to do. Right. And I, and I think that leads to, I mean, while they're not great, it's a thin black line, right? I mean, but, but still thin. So I think somebody's trying, attempting, is struggling with trying to do it and seeking out guidance. You know, I think of, I think of decisions that were made years ago prior to not necessarily to this being here, but prior to certain things with, with regard to feeding when you couldn't, when a person couldn't eat. Um, I remember with my, like, so my grandmother, um, that was a, that was a difficult, that was a year, that was in 94, 93. I don't know. Some, it was a long time ago and went to the, several people, uh, 
to ask like, well, what's the right thing to do? It's prior to that. I mean, that's a difficult situation. Um, she had been clear and there had been multiple people in the church that they had gone to see that, that had said, I think that's, uh, extraordinary or burdensome. Mm -hmm. Um, obviously now that would be different. Sure. Um, but I don't know how, I don't know, you know, how, I guess what I'm saying is that's, there was lots of angst and lots of struggle with that decision. And so trying to get, trying to go to church leaders, to different people to ask them like, well, what's the, what is the appropriate thing to do? Right. Um, I mean, that's, I guess what I'm saying is it's, it is a struggle that is, that is a real life decision, just like everything else that you're doing your best to try to apply and listen to, to the different people and follow in good conscience. What does the church say? Um, but you're like, there's got to be a, there's hope to be a comfort level with it, which is what we came to now looking back. I mean, if you look back from today, say probably the answer would have been something different, mm -hmm. but I do remember that being a struggle, um, on what was the appropriate thing to do. Um, and what was the understanding of what is truly burdensome or disproportionately burdensome? Right. Well, and, and you raise an issue of food and water that I think is, is, is really difficult. And, and as you're talking about, you know, with your own family situation, there, there was a time in the church where there wasn't really definitive teaching on right. whether or not it was morally obligatory to provide food and water. And, and that really began to end in 2004 with St. Right. John Paul II in an allocution to medical professionals. He described providing food and water, even as medically, through medically administered means, as normal comfort care. So it's not a treatment. It's not like right. a surgery. It's not like antibiotics, but it's the kind of thing we do to human beings because we care for them, right? As simple comfort care, providing them food, providing them water. Um, and then that was further clarified in 2007 and 2008 by the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, since even after John Paul II, there were some questions. And a lot of that came because if you recall the Terry Schiavo uh, right. situation um, in Florida, I won't go into all those details now, but, but um, you know, with patients who are in what's called a persistent vegetative state. Um, and so anyway, the, but the, the teaching on food and water, I think that is important for family members to know is first of all, that it is in principle morally obligatory to provide because it's comfort care. It's not like other treatments. However, that doesn't mean there aren't times where we should discontinue providing food and water for a loved one. So for example, when death is imminent, right? It may, it, it wouldn't be necessary. There's also a thing called psychological horror. Uh, when, when, you know, a patient, for example, a patient who is, uh, d has dementia, um, who no longer can process this tube and they're, and, and what's happening. And so they keep tearing out the tubes and nothing will console them. And, and every time they have any awareness, they're tearing out the tubes. It's not uncommon with patients who are, who have dementia. And so that psychological horror can prevent us. Or a third example of when we can, when, or see, that psychological horror can say, discontinue providing food and water. But the third example I would give of when we can discontinue food and water is, is when the body, the patient is no longer able to assimilate it, can't do what is necessary with that food and water. Right. So I remember an ethics consult I received uh, th this past year from a pediatrician who, was, who had a patient where there was a bowel obstruction and as a result of infections. And in this case, you know, I just to kind of cut to the chase of the situation, they were trying, that some of the doctors were trying to move things along. So they said, hey, let's stop giving antibiotics to move things along. Radar went up for me, right? I was very worried that they were trying to euthanize this patient by withdrawing morally obligatory, proportionately beneficial care. And, but at the same time, we talked about food and water because there was a bowel obstruction right? This patient couldn't assimilate the food and water. And so it was making this, this little one very uncomfortable and actually experiencing severe pain. So I said, disc I recommended discontinuing food and water because 
the patient cannot assimilate it. It can't serve its purpose. But at the same time, I was saying, hey, let's treat this infection that's easy to treat. And in this case, it actually was easy to treat. Um, so again, food and water, it's normal comfort care. In principle, it's morally obligatory, but at times, there's times. There's, we do discontinue providing it. But what happens today is too often, that's the means by which we intentionally hasten life. Um, yeah. it's, and we have to be careful about it. Well, I know, and this is, I don't think we were going to get into this, but as you were talking, I know that when we redid our will and made sure that that was in there, the, the attorney who was not who's not Catholic was, I just want to make sure you understand what you're saying will happen here. (laughs) Uh, You could live a long time with doing that, you know, with, with continuing feeding. And that's why I said, you know, but anyway, I, I just, it's knowing what you trying, but trying to give a directive or not, I'm, we're not going to talk about directives today, Today, but, 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 but trying to give some, thought to taking it out of the hands of the people that are going to be there maybe having to make the decision themselves because that's difficult and even if even if you're talking about children or a husband and other people i think that it's important for us as parents it's important for our children to know some of these principles so that prior to it actually happening because there's so much emotion involved in the moment of those things coming into play that if you don't provide that, or if you're not able to provide it by your own words, because something has happened, you, you do put people in a difficult situation because most of them will say, well, I know he wouldn't want this. Right. Or I know that he would. And you might have the same people saying about the same person, the exact opposite and there's no way to do that. I mean, there's no way to know which is the right, which is the one way, I guess, that the person would want it. And is that consistent with, with church teaching? I don't know. I, what do you think about how, 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 how to handle that? I mean, this is, I'm not, hopefully we're giving people sure things that they can do, but, but the more you talk about it, the more we talk about it, the more, I, and having lived through it um, multiple times, the more I realize how difficult it is. And while it's important to know the disproportionate, you know, proportionate, Mm -hmm. um, extraordinary, not extraordinary, obligatory, all those type of things, even the obligatory one, you, you said that there are situations. So who's going to help a person? How does a person go about making sure they're asking the right questions of the right person who would give them an objective answer as to what's the right thing? How does one, find that person. Right. Well, I, I think it's so important as you were kind of hinting at is of, I mean, we're afraid in the United States to talk about these things, right. you know, beforehand. And, 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 and like you said, in the moment when, you know, a loved one is dying, it is so difficult for the first time, right. To, to, you know, begin recognizing the frailty of life and making decisions. I mean, you know, this from firsthand, we both know this from firsthand experience. So I think at the very least, it's important to have those conversations, but again, to have them as a Catholic with the mind of the church right. and avoiding these extreme statements that, that, you know, that I was sharing with you earlier, uh, no matter what, do nothing, you know, and, and with, or with the last spark of energy in the world, uh, do everything you can. Um, so I think having these conversations, I know we won't go fully into advanced planning documents, but I do think they're an important part of the process. But the key thing is for loved ones that I think, you know, the one instruction I've given my wife is, is at the end of the day, make sure whatever is done for me, if I can't make decisions for myself, is in keeping with the church's teaching. Because of what matters more than anything else is the salvation of my soul, the salvation of her soul. That's the most important thing right. in life. And, and then she also knows who to call, right? And so in, in her case, it's to call the National Catholic Bioethics Center, uh, which is good for, any, for anybody, you know, to call. They're always, they, they have 
24-7 hotline for consultation for these kinds of things. So calling the National Bioethics Center, I think, is a great resource. Calling somebody like me, I'm not going to give out my cell phone right now, but right. you know, calling somebody who has expertise, who can walk patients through these sorts of things, I think is, is very fruitful, very helpful. There are some priests, you know, who, who have expertise in this area. I mean, even here at St. Mary's, we're blessed. We have uh, uh, a, uh, one of our priests is a bioethicist, right? Uh, Father uh, Greg, right, is, uh, has a license, I think, in bioethics, wow. if, I, if I recall. So, um, you know, not most priests aren't right. um, by any means or stretch of the imagination experts in this area. It's a very, def- it's a it's very, very small group. So it doesn't mean automatically the priest is the one, but they may be able to point to you to the right group. And, and really, frankly, the group is National Catholic Bioethics Center, or again, a few individuals like myself, or maybe like Father Greg. So they would. So if they call, if somebody called, or, or either precursor to this, like you know, to well, I guess I'll I'll go forward. If they were in a situation that was like that, they could call there, and there would actually be somebody who say, "Okay, here's the here are the facts." And and then they would ask questions for clarity. Yeah, they'd first get the facts. You know, right. tell me about the situation. Tell me about the patient. Tell me about the medical options that are being proposed. What's the likelihood of success? What's the disease progression? You know, I mean, all those kinds of details need to be known. What are the desires of the patient is important. I mean, it is part of it. Right. Uh, and, you know, uh, what are the resources of the patient? Um, all, you know, finding out those kinds of factors and then teasing it out from there into making a recommendation. And they're there to receive those type of yep. calls? Yeah, they literally yeah. have a 24-7 hotline. They, there's That's, somebody on call I mean, all the time. Uh, I also say, you know, like with, you know, I've walked out of mass before. You know, I'll go again, I'll go another time. You know, I've, I've walked out of mass to take an ethics consult when a priest is at a bedside in somebody's home. Um, and so, I mean, that privilege of walking family members yeah. through some of the most difficult and, 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 and challenging um, situations they'll face in their entire life, if not the most difficult, you know, letting a loved one go or of fighting for the life of a loved one uh, is really an incredible privilege. And uh, certainly, you know, when those of us who engage in that work take it very seriously and, and want to be able to Thank be a God. resource yeah. to, to, to loved ones, to families, to patients. Because that, I mean, that is such a... Port, I had no idea. So that that that's that's except hopefully people out there. If if I didn't know, maybe maybe there um, would be. But we need to maybe put that out there or yeah. So figure out if I may, ncbcenter.org is the web okay. is their website ncbcenter.org, um, and and they're I mean they're the best. They're the best in the country. They are I mean at at doing this sort of thing. That that's great to know because I yeah. think that's what I recall is there didn't seem to be, or, or at least we weren't aware of. Um, and it's been, you know, almost 20 years since, sure. since that, that since something like that's happened. So maybe, or maybe not, they were there, but anyway, we're, we're getting down to 10, but thanks for that. Cause I think that's very helpful. Um, because ultimately what we hope this would be, would be able to give people some idea of like, where do you go for these type of things mm-hmm. and how do you handle a situation? So anyway, um, I know we're down to the last uh, 10 minutes here. So um, there are a couple of things that you had mentioned about, you know, terms like futility or quality of life. Okay. I mean, you hear quality of life all the time. Yeah. I mean, I mean, it's thrown out there. And we've got to be really careful with the language we use. And I, and I have this conversation with doctors in particular all the time. I encourage them to use the language of proportionately beneficial versus disproportionately burdensome. Um, but one of the phrases that is used all the time is quality of life. And, and, but what does that mean? What's the standard? Right. Like what quality of life is good? Does the disabled child, right? Right. Have a, like for them, the medical treatment, Yep. isn't worth doing because, oh, that's not a life, a quality of life worth living, right? I mean, and so groups like disability communities really reel at the kind of language of quality of life. We have to be really careful when we use that kind of language. I recommend, for the most part, just eradicating it from the, from the language that we use in talking about uh, uh, whether or not a treatment should be used. I mean, obviously, you know, I mean, you go in and you have a treatment and and you know, 
Thaddeus takes care of himself here. He's in pretty good shape, right? And he maybe be after this treatment, he maybe won't be able to run as much, you know, as as he used to. Okay, so in a sense, like that's diminished quality of life. It's something you get joy from, et cetera. But does that mean like, oh, I can't run anymore, so now I can't? Yes, yeah, not worth on that. Or or you can't see anymore, or you can't, you know, maybe you'll be in a wheelchair, whatever the quote quality of life. The standard is really amorphous and it's and so we have to dangerous. be really careful and john dangerous. paul ii saint john paul and evangelium vitae said let's not use that language instead let's speak of the sanctity of human life does this uphold this treatment uphold the sanctity of life or not right uh, the dignity of human life uh respect great, for human life that's so. i think that's an important thing that we, absolutely we need to talk about because yeah. it is thrown around a lot and as you say to define what that is it's a broad oh it's so broad it's not something that actually helps you make a decision that's right so um and then the the other one that that i know comes up quite a bit because i I also saw this particularly with my mother um on managing pain at Mm. the end of life and what what are what are the guidelines what how how does that yeah so so this is a a very important topic because you know i mean one in the the so-called culture wars one of the biggest excuses you know, for assisted suicide, for euthanasia is, uh, is, is to manage pain, right? To deal with pain and patients deserve better than that. But two questions in particular come up, uh, in, in terms of the ethical conversation, uh, for managing pain. The first is, can we, uh, manage pain to the degree that we sedate a patient, right? So they're no longer conscious of their surroundings, they no longer have that awareness. And the answer is we need to do as, we need to manage pain, but to the least degree necessary right. for that patient, right? We shouldn't unnecessarily sedate them so they're unaware of their surroundings. And the church is very clear. Why? Because we need to spiritually be able to prepare ourselves. There are times where we have to sedate patients, but just automatically going to that part, you know, to sedating is not is, is very rarely, I should say, the answer. So we have to do it very carefully and kind of titrate, if you will, the amount of pain medica- medication given so that a patient, as much as possible, is kept comfortable, but also aware of their surroundings. But obviously, again, there are times where we have to sedate to unconsciousness, right? The second question comes up is, hey, oftentimes when we sedate patients or when we're giving pain medication, death will be hastened right? Their lifespan will be shorter as a result of giving them that medicine. And so the question comes, well, we're hastening death. Is that okay or is it not? And there again, we have to look at the intention and we have to look at what we're doing. We do what we can to manage the pain. The intention must be good. If in the process of simply managing pain with a good intention, right? So the right thing for the right reason, if life is shortened as a result of that, that's morally okay. But that's not the same. It's not the same thing as euthanasia. But so we would call that palliative sedation, right? Palliative sedation versus what I call terminal sedation, where, all right, mercy killing, where we intentionally increase with, without trying to do as little as possible for the purpose of hastening death, right? Let's sedate them and keep giving them more than they actually need to be kept comfortable so that we can, quote, move things along. That's what I would call, what we would call terminal sedation, and that ultimately is an act of euthanasia. That's what was being done in that Midwest uh, Catholic hospital. Right. Um, you know, and again, with the idea of mercy, but really it's a false mercy. Yeah, it's, it's a false mercy. compassion. Um, so again, so the two things with, with managing care is, again, keeping them comfortable, but as to the degree that we're able, keeping them conscious, unless, and that and that's so. I I I mean, I'll we just got a little bit of time, but yeah. I, when, I, when my mother's pain was managed that way, and really up until the very last few hours of her life, um, and she didn't. I mean, I we they tried, they couldn't get her to manage. So she was in tremendous right. pain at the very end. But up until that the management of it, she was coherent and she could talk to us. I mean, and how much would have been lost if she'd been sedated unnecessarily. So during that time, and and I'm grateful for that. Now, you know, the pain that occurred as whatever was happening inside her body that led to her death, that caused great, you know, even that 
you know, was a spiritual thing for me. It came back. I mean, she got, she made the decision. I'll, 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 you can put me on this bed. You know, she'd always said, I'll just stay in my own bed, but they brought a bed. You can put me on this bed. Well, like the minute they put her on the bed, she went in Well, she was on that bed for three hours. So for me, it was always, that was a beautiful moment, albeit hard because it pointed me to Christ, which is what I know she would have been trying to do in her, in her thing. So I know that's hard, but I'm grateful. The fact that four hours before she died, she said, I want to go on this bed. I'm happy to do it, which she had fought against forever, which I knew something was changing. And she was embracing the cross that was coming, whether she knew it or not. And there was grace in that moment right. that, that I received, albeit hard. But anyway, I know we're down to two minutes. So sure. if you had to tie it in a bow uh, and we need to have you back on again, I mean, what, what, would, you, what would you tell people out there listening with regard well, to end of life? Sure. Well, I mean, I would just really kind of reinforce what you were just saying there at the end. It's really easy to get caught up in this idea that these decisions are purely medical, but they're not because we're talking about human beings and we're talking about psychosocial, spiritual goods as well. And so the good of being able to spend time with aware of one's surroundings and with family, hearing family talk, hearing stories, hearing the songs one loves, holding the hand and being aware that I'm holding my son's hand, I mean, are exceptionally valuable, mm-hmm. right? The spiritual good of being able to be prepared to have a truly good death, right? Which is a death of virtue, a death in which we we are prepared to meet the Lord who made us. So I think it's important for us to, to keep in mind always that we're talking about human beings and we're not just a biological medical reality, though that's part of it, but also we have spiritual goods and psychosocial goods as well, the good is in particular here of the family. Well, the death and the death of all the people I'm mentioning were all things that I look back at were hard, but they right. were, a beautiful I'm glad death. that we went through yeah. what we went through. Mm-hmm. So anyway, I hope we can all, I hope I can die like, like my uh, family members. Sure. Have. So anyway, uh, Verse of the day, Colossians one twenty four. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I complete what is lacking uh, in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body. That is the church. Fitting for my mother right now. So God bless us all. Remember, only God can take the mystery out of parenthood. Pray, parent with a purpose, and prepare for God to amaze you. And he will. God bless you guys. Keep us in your prayers, and um, we'll see you next week. Bye. Cross